Let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Jude. Growing up, I played soccer. And I really like soccer. It's just only one problem. I was not very good at it. <laughs> but there was one year where I was on a good team and I had a good coach. Man, I felt kind of good about myself. I, I played on defense. And uh, there were three of us back there on defense. I was on the right side. My best friend in the world, he was in the middle. Some other guy, I can't remember, he was on the left. But we were good, all right? They called us the brick wall. I still try to get people to call me that today, but it doesn't work quite as well. Um, but I was, we were the brick wall. We didn't let nothing get in our net, okay? We were kind of mean about it, too. You know, we were a little rough, a little tough, got a few yellow cards, made a few kids cry. But that was our job, right? To keep the ball from going in the net. That's what defense is. Defense is important. You can have the best offense in the whole world, but without a good defense, it's hard to win. This morning, our sermon is titled, The Battle Ready Defense. We're going to see how and why we must protect our church. If we want to fulfill the mission that God has given us, we've got to play a little defense. Protecting the church is something that we find and learn about in the book of Jude. If you were here last week, our lead pastor, Derek, introduced this book for us. And we're going to spend just a few weeks in this letter walking through it because Jude is short. You see that in your Bible? I mean, it's really short. It's so short, it doesn't even have chapters. And that's one of the reasons why this book often gets overlooked. It's only 25 verses long. It's next to last in the order of the books of the Bible. And also, as Pastor Derek so eloquently said last week, it's a little weird. It's got some strange things in it, but in this book is a very important message for the church today. Jude, the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, challenges the church in this letter to contend for the faith, to fight for the purity of the gospel by dealing with false teaching and to help followers of Jesus everywhere live a battle-ready life. So let's read our text for this morning, and let me invite you to please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. From the letter of Jude, verses 8 through 16, says this, Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers. 
malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We saw last week the reason that Jude wrote this letter. So look back with me at verses 3 and 4 of Jude. He spelled it out so clearly. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and the sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Jude told these believers that he was writing to them to challenge them to contend for the faith. That word contend means to fight, to struggle. He wanted these believers to make sure they remembered the essentials of the faith or what we call the gospel. The gospel is the message of salvation. It's the good news about Jesus. And and he says it was delivered once for all, meaning it doesn't change over time. So they needed to contend. They needed to protect and guard that message. Why? Why is he using this battle language? Well, he says in verse 4, it's because certain people had crept into the church. There were these ungodly people, lost people who were acting like Christians, and they were perverting grace. In other words, they were using God's grace to justify their sinful lifestyle and leading others to do the same. And by their lifestyle, they were denying Jesus as Lord. Then in 5 through 7, Jude reminded the church there's always been ungodly people in God's story. And he gave three examples of how God dealt with that. Then in today's passage, he builds on that background and begins to detail specifically what is going on in this church, who these ungodly people are, and how we must defend ourselves from these attacks. So let's walk through this passage verse by verse. Let's get our bearings. And I'm going to come back in at the end and give us two takeaways as we learn how to have a battle-ready defense. Let's start in verse 8. Look there. He says, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here we learn four things about these false teachers. First off, they relied on their dreams. That's really kind of all the detail we have about that. But it seems that there were these people in the church who were using dreams or visions to justify their ungodly lifestyle. They were probably claiming that God was speaking to them through those dreams. Now, the Bible does not roundly condemn dreams and visions. We see many instances in Scripture when God speaks to his people through dreams. And there is a debate today on whether God still uses these means to communicate to his people. But there's one thing in the Bible that is completely clear. We should test everything against the Word of God. God will not contradict himself. He's not going to say one thing in the Bible and tell you something else. So generally, when we hear something or we we read something or even the words that you hear me say on Sunday morning, we need to test them against Scripture. Does it agree with the Bible or do they contradict? And let me just say, me personally, maybe because I grew up Baptist, I get a little nervous when someone says, hey, God told me, fill in the blank. (laughs) Now, I don't think we should burn people at the stake and I'm not going to jump up and say, you liar. But I am going to listen carefully to what they say, and then I'm going to go to the Bible. Because I believe the Bible is the primary way that God speaks to his people today. 
Can God speak in other ways? Sure he can. He's God. I've never personally heard the audible voice of God, but there's been times in my life where I felt a particular impression or prompting in my spirit, like when God called me to ministry. But look, I know because I'm a sinner, my wires get crossed pretty easy. (laughs) I always want to go and put it up against Scripture. So if you come to me and you tell me, you say, Pastor, I really believe that God is telling me to be a better husband and to serve my wife and family more, then I'd say, yeah, you know, he, he probably is because that accords with Scripture. But if you come to me and you tell me and you say, Pastor, I really believe God is telling me to leave my wife and kids because he wants me to be happy with someone else, then I'd say, you probably drink some expired milk this week because that is not God talking, Okay. So these false teachers, they relied on their dreams to justify their sin. Second, it says they defiled their flesh. Whenever this phrase is used in Scripture, it typically means sexual sin. So most people believe that these false teachers were, were guilty of some kind of sexual sin. They defiled their flesh. Third, we see that they rejected authority. By living in sin, they were rejecting the authority of God over their lives. That's what sin is. Sin is kicking God off the throne of your heart and taking that seat for yourself. It's rejecting his reign and rule. They had become their own authority by rejecting God's. And fourth, we see that they blasphemed the glorious ones. Now, what does that mean? It's kind of weird, kind of interesting, and kind of debated. It seems to mean that they were speaking badly of angelic beings. But how in the world do you do that? Well, the next verse gives us a little more context. Look at this, verse 9. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, maybe you read that and you were like me and thought, man, I really don't remember that story in Sunday school growing up. (laughs) What in the world is going on here with the archangel and the devil fighting over Moses? Jude is referencing this story about Michael, the angel, arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, except we don't have access to this story today. That's because it's, it's not in the Bible. It's not in any other Jewish writing that has survived the test of time. There is this book called The Assumption of Moses that the early church fathers referenced, and that's where scholars think this story came from. But this raises an important question for us. Did Jude believe this lost book was God's word? Do we have a missing book of the Bible? Well, no. There's no indication that Jude sees this story as being a part of God's inspired work. Just because he references a writing that isn't found in Scripture doesn't mean that writing is inspired, and it doesn't mean that Jude's letter should be thrown out. It simply means one of two things. Either Jude believed the story about Moses' body to be true, Or he knew his audience would be familiar with this story and he used it as an example. That's all we know. Let's don't get lost in the details here. Let's let's ask the question, what point is Jude trying to make? Michael, an archangel, meaning this big dog in the angel world, top of the line, even he did not dare to speak blasphemously to Satan. But rather he left his judgment in God's hands. He said, hey, the Lord rebuke you. And this speaks of Michael's humility and and acceptance of God's authority. So this tells us what he means by blaspheming the glorious ones. Some way, somehow, these false teachers were speaking down to Satan and demons. They're being prideful rather than trusting in God. 
In other words, they were getting a little too big for the britches, all right? Jude affirms this idea in verse 10. He says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. I don't know about you, but it's probably not nice to call someone an unreasoning animal. (laughs) He's saying, hey, these, these guys, they talk a big game. They act like they're all high and holy, but really they're like animals just following their instincts. And they're being destroyed by them. Let's keep going. Look at verse 11. So he says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. That word woe, it's not like woe, Nelly, like you're riding a horse. This is woe, oh no, woe, like a judgment upon these people. This is bad. And this judgment comes by comparing these false teachers to three Old Testament figures, three guys that you do not want to be associated with. Let's, let's look at them. First, there's Cain. He's the most familiar. We know about Cain. He and his brother Abel were the first kids in the whole Bible, and Cain murdered his brother Abel. Not the guy you want to be compared to. Second, we've got Balaam. He's a little less familiar, but maybe you remember the story where he was rebuked by his own donkey. Pretty embarrassing. Yeah, in Numbers 22, God causes a donkey to speak and rebuke Balaam, but He still doesn't fully get it. He ends up tricking the Israelites into sin, and the Old Testament tells us he did it for money. And then third, there's Korah. He's probably the least known guy here. He's also found in the book of Numbers. He he leads this rebellion against Moses. He brings all these people up against his leadership, and God opens up the earth and swallows him. So, again, not a great example. These are not people you want to be compared to. And Judah's telling us that these men, he's rebuking, they're, they're following this pattern. All throughout history, there have been people who have followed evil desires instead of God, who have harmed others, who have led people astray, and they were judged for it. And he wants us to see that the same thing is happening with false teachers in the church today. Just like Cain, these false teachers, they chose to disobey God and harm other people. Like Balaam, they led others away for the sake of personal gain. And like Korah, they were rebelling against God's authority and leading others to do the same. Jude then continues to show the character and the damage these false teachers were doing with some really colorful illustrations. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Six images that he uses right here to describe these false teachers. First, he calls them hidden reefs. This refers to rocks hidden under the surface of water that might cause a ship to sink. And he says, these people, they're at your love feasts. You ever been to a love feast? What is that? (laughs) These were meals that the early church had together. In my mind, these are like the very first potluck meals. So that's why I know uh, the very first Christians were indeed Baptist, okay? (laughs) But these ungodly people, they were showing up to these feasts without fear, without shame. They were sinning against people, disobeying the Lord, and then breaking bread like nothing was wrong. Second, he calls them shepherds feeding themselves. What's a shepherd supposed to do? Supposed to feed the sheep. These people cared about themselves. Third, he pictured them as waterless clouds. 
Rain is incredibly valuable, especially in the first century in this arid climate that they lived in. So to have a cloud with no rain, that was a total waste. Fourth, Jude described them as fruitless trees. Again, they're not producing what they promised. What good is a fruit tree with no fruit? Not only that, but they're dead, twice dead and uprooted. And fifth, they're wild waves, casting up foam, which is their shame, these ungodly actions they're producing. And sixth, they're wandering stars. They're unstable, not following a normal pattern. They've gone off course in disobedience to God. And as a result, Jude says, they will be reserved for the gloom of utter darkness forever. They'll be judged, and they'll spend eternity in hell. Last two verses, Jude continues to speak of their coming judgment. Look at 14 and 15. He says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Here, Jude again dips into a book that is not in the Bible. This quote is from the book of First Enoch. And we actually do have that available today. You can go online and read it. It was a book that was widely known in this time, so his readers would have recognized it. And that's probably why Jude quoted from it. He wasn't saying the book of 1 Enoch is God-inspired scripture. In fact, the church never included it in the canon of the Bible. Rather, Jude was just using something to make a point. Paul did the same thing with a Greek poet in Acts. So what is his point? Well, do you see the word that's used in those verses over and over and over again? It's the word ungodly. The point is, is Jesus is going to return one day with his angels, and he's going to deal with ungodliness. And Jude saw that as including these false teachers. He makes the connection in the last verse, verse 16. He says they're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. As if Jude has not said enough about these bad guys, he just continues to lay it on. They're grumblers, they're, they're, they're complainers, they follow their own sinful desires, they show favoritism so they can get an advantage, they're loudmouth boasters, they're, they're arrogant with their speech. Bottom line, Jude makes no bones about it. There are people in these churches who are wicked, they're deceitful, they're leading others into sexual sin for financial gain, and God is going to deal with them. Therefore, the church must be on guard. So let's ask the question, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us today? There's two things I think we must do. Here's the first. Number one, we must remain alert to the destructiveness of false teaching. One of the hallmarks of false teaching is destruction. It destroys people's lives and families and churches. But we need to be cautious that we don't label everything we disagree with as false teaching or everyone we disagree with as a false teacher. All right, there's a difference between error and heresy, okay? Our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they believe in infant baptism. But they're not false teachers or heretics. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they believe in spirit baptism. But they're not false teachers or heretics. Those are secondary doctrines. 
So what makes someone a heretic? What makes someone a false teacher? It's when they err on a primary essential doctrine, something like the person of Jesus or the Trinity or the gospel. So again, let's be very cautious when we use that label, false teacher. But let's also remain alert. How do we do that? How would we recognize false teaching? Well, I read a post recently, author Colin Smith. He gave four differences between true and false Christianity. I thought this was really good. He said, first, false teachers use a different source. As I mentioned earlier, we're to measure everything up against the word of God. So when someone is teaching something from God, yet it's not found in his word, that may be an indication of false teaching. False teachers distort or they add or they take away from the Bible. Second, false teachers use a different message. False teaching distorts the gospel. It will take away or add to Jesus and what he did at the cross. It may distort the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. They may add works into the equation. Third, false teachers have a different character. As we see in Jude, these false teachers, they weren't godly people. And Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. So if someone is living in sin and they're promoting a sinful lifestyle, they may be a false teacher. And fourth, false teachers have a different end goal. The end goal of false teaching is chaos and deceit and destruction. So is the teaching you're hearing, is it leading people to become more like Jesus and to love God more and to build up the church? Or is it tearing down? You see the difference there? It's not just a different view or a different interpretation of the Bible. False teaching is a whole different animal altogether. And we must be alert to the signs of it. Why? So we can be paranoid and go around calling everyone we disagree with a false teacher? Or so when someone disagrees with us in our Sunday school class, we can jump up and say, no, you heretic. That's what some Christians do with this message. They point fingers. They label and they never stop to look at themselves. No, we need to remain alert to false teaching first and respect to ourselves. False teaching is seductive and blinding. It's intentionally manipulative and misleading. And none of us, apart from the grace of God, are above being swayed or tempted by it. So we remain alert. But on the flip side, we don't do so with fear. We should not be afraid of false teachers and false teachings because here's the second thing we need to do. We must remain focused on the destruction of false teachers. Jude makes clear that in the end, those who twist the gospel for their own means and lead other people astray will face the judgment of God. They will spend eternity in utter darkness we don't have to fear them because God's going to deal with them. He built his church and he said the gates of hell will not stand against us. But here's the thing. The destruction of these false teachers is not primarily a cause to rejoice. Rather, it's a cause to mourn. Someone facing the, the prospect of eternal judgment, it's never a reason to celebrate and feel good about ourselves. Because here's the reality. We deserve that same thing. Were it not for God's grace, I would be in the same predicament as them. Ultimately, these people are not enemies to be defeated, but their souls to be won. Therefore, we should have compassion on them. Last year, during the uh, pandemic, 
I became friends with two young missionaries from the Church of Latter-day Saints, or who we sometimes call Mormons. I met them over Facebook, believe it or not, and we began meeting up once a week for several months. We got to know each other and our stories. I shared what I believed. They shared what they believed. I tried to evangelize them, and they tried to evangelize me. You know, it was really a cool experience because I got to learn a lot about Mormonism, and, and I'm not sure how much you know about them. But there's a lot of things that they would agree with me completely on. Loving people, serving people, going to church, reading the Bible. They would even agree that the most important thing we can do is follow Jesus. But when we got down into what that means, I discovered that they and I were not following the same Jesus. The LDS church teaches a different gospel than we do. For one, they see the writings of the Book of Mormon as equal to the Bible. Also, they believe Jesus was actually born by God and became a God, not God eternally as we do. And they believe that ultimately, if you live a good enough life and follow the teachings of Joseph Smith and the Bible, that you too can become a God and have your own planet. (laughs) So I hope you can see that is a clear example of false teaching. And therefore, these two friends of mine, based on our definition, were false teachers. And I don't say that proudly. I don't say that in like a gotcha way. Because here's the deal, after spending time with them, I did not walk away angry or upset with them. I walked away sad. I was angry at this system, this religious system that they were born in that had, that had manipulated them. And these were not guys who were out trying to trick and hustle people and get rich. These were 19-year-old young men living on a minimal income in a city they'd never been to before, far away from their families, and they believed they were doing the right thing. They truly believed that their way, that their gospel was what was true and what was good for people. I tried to share the idea of grace with them. It was like a foreign concept. It didn't make any sense. I felt compassion for them because they were so deceived by their false teaching that they couldn't even imagine it might be wrong. This story illustrates both points of our message. Number one, we've got to remain alert and protect ourselves from the destruction of false teaching. We need to be aware of the kind of content we listen to, we read, and especially that we consume online. Number two, we must understand that God will deal with those who teach falsely. That's his job, not ours. Our job is to love people, to show them the truth and love, and to try and save them from the coming destruction. If we can do that, protecting our church, loving those who come against us, holding on to the gospel, then we will have a battle-ready defense. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.